John chapter 5. Um, I'm going to read to you the first 15 verses, although we'll, we'll probably just get through the first nine. And as, the, as, I, as I read this, this passage, I could really could spend quite a bit of time, and I probably will, but not this morning. All right, so I actually I looked at this, and the more I started thinking about this passage, I thought I needed three hours. Uh, so we're going to spend some time in this passage, but not all this morning, all right? So I'm not going to keep you too long, all right? So you're good to go, huh? So it tells us in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, after this, that is, he was in the region of Galilee, the northern region, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew, or some of your translations may say Aramaic. It's called Bethesda, having five porches. And in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well by whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him and said, sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, and he took up his bed and he walked. And that day was the Sabbath. And the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. And then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. And afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see that you have been, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. So, Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. As we look into this passage, as we consider the things that you really have for us this morning in hearing this, reading it, and giving thought to it and allowing your spirit to speak to our hearts. And so we pray just that, Lord, that your spirit would speak to our hearts this morning and that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us, and that you would teach us of your ways, O oh Lord, that we would walk in your truth as the psalmist prayed. We ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.
As I started reading through this particular chapter, and, and I'm becoming more and more convinced as I'm reading through this um, that there are more theological statements and more instruction for how we are to live in the Gospels uh, than I think than we often realize. I think at times we miss those, those statements, those theological statements, because they're, they're not given to us in a very definitive manner, yet uh, they, are, they are played out before us in these stories. And, and these stories are given to us for our instruction. Now, of course, most of you know this. Yes, I believe these stories are true stories. I don't think they're made up. I think they really actually did happen. But they are also incredible case studies for us to learn more about who God is and how God operates and, and the heart of God in dealing with humanity. And I think there's so much more in the Gospels. I think often it is that we kind of get wrapped up in the story and we can step back and kind of read it as a story, even if we know that it is a true story, rather than inserting ourselves in the story and recognize that these are incredible teachings that, that Jesus is imparting to us through the works that he did. And I think it's evident, we didn't read it this morning, but in verse 17 of this chapter, uh, Jesus says, my father is working until now and I am working. There's an incredible amount of teaching in the Gospels, even though most of it is within the context of what we would, I would call street ministry. His engaging with people out on the street. Now there were times, of course, we see this in Matthew, Mark, and and Luke more, but we, we have times of, let's say, the Sermon on the Mount where he actually set aside times where we're actually taught. Uh, we have what's called the Olivet Discourse, where it's uh, in Matthew uh, 24 and Matthew 25, uh, where he, he gives this uh, teaching on answering three questions. When will the temple be destroyed? What is the sign of your coming? And what is the sign of the end of the age? And he answers all three of those questions in uh, Matthew 24 and in 25, but also it's in Luke 23, I believe, uh, and Mark 13. Um, but much of his interaction, much of his teaching is really kind of on the street when he's passing through places or going through towns or uh, like what we, we saw a couple of weeks ago with the woman at the well. She, he comes in the side car and he's sitting down at the well and he's tired and he wants to and the woman shows up and he asks for a drink. Which is interesting to me because it's an incredible role model for how we can interact and how we should interact with people as we go about our day. I had a friend of mine, and, and, and he's gone home to be with the Lord, and he was, a, he was one of the elders in the church that ordained me. And, and I, I really like this guy, um, with the exception, he always had a pulpit strapped to his chest. And, and it, it, you, some of you are like laughing because I think you're following me. Some of you are like, what in the world are you talking about? Now, for those of you who really know me, you know I don't have a pulpit strapped to my chest, right? I'm not always out, you know, thus saying the lording yet, right? And, and it's, it's like, <sighs> 
And, and I understand that the things of God are the most important things in our life. I get that. But, but I, and I, I never had a chance to tell this guy this, but I, at times I wanted to say, you know what? Why don't you just interact with people where they are? Instead of, you know, and, and part of the problem was he always wanted to pastor a church, and he, he never did, um, you know. And, and it'll be an interesting conversation we have in eternity when he kind of shares me his perspective now. Uh, he really desired to pastor church and never did, and, and uh, well, never mind. But uh, anyway, uh, but to interact with people where they are and to talk to them about real-life things and, and knowing, knowing and, and I don't think we have to push it. What do I mean? I don't think we have to push into the Christian discussion because we do have... God who created the earth, created the world, he created everything in it. And, and particularly in just talking about everyday life, there can be natural segues into talking about the things of God if we are sensitive to and attentive to the Holy Spirit who shows us a direction to go into instead of trying to shoehorn it in. You know what I mean by shoehorning? Uh, some of you probably have never used a shoehorn. I remember my mom that was dress shoes for church too. Oh, I hated dressing up for church. But anyway, I had to wear these shoes and I could barely get them on. I don't know what she was thinking. Maybe she was mad at me the time that she bought them. I was probably three or four years old. But anyway, you had to use a shoehorn to put these things on. And, and I knew that it was, I, I would pay a big price if I did it, but I always wanted to take those shoes and throw them over the fence and tell mom that they were lost, you know? But, uh, yeah, to have to push and squeeze yourself in, kind of like when you get a new pair of boots, right? You know, you've got to break those in, and there's some, you use those things that you pull them up with the straps and all that. But um, talking about the things of God can become very, very natural. And it become very, very easy if you just <clears throat> allow the Holy Spirit to lead you in those conversations rather than trying to push it and force it. Uh, Jesus met people where they were. He met people where they were. And he used their life circumstances and situations to bring forth the good news. And we can do the same with the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit. I don't know why, where that came from. I just, I just felt that it was important to bring this out. But there's an important flow here also in the book of John that we don't want to neglect. John chapter 2, we see the beginning of Jesus' ministry where you have the water is turned into the wine. Water is a symbol of what? Life. It's a symbol of life. And wine, much to some of yours chagrins, but wine in the scripture really is a symbol of whom? The Holy Spirit of God. It's also a symbol of whom? Of what? Excuse me. Joy. It's all over the Psalms. I didn't write them, okay? It's all over the Psalms. Sorry, guys. Turning the water into wine is symbolic of life in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit. Life and the Spirit both are to be joyful. The kingdom of God is joy, peace, and righteousness in the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in Romans chapter 13. Life is to be joyful. 
I know some of you are having fun. I hope all of you are having fun. Life is intended to be joyful. The changing of the water into wine. John 3, the big question, how do I enter the kingdom of God? We looked at that. This idea of being born again or being born from above, this conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus. And then in John 4, Jesus begins to validate his mission. He validates his mission with the woman at the well. To me, this is fascinating because we, and we looked at this. We spent one Sunday just on that one verse. They confessed that he was the savior of the world. Jesus is affirming his mission as the savior of the world to those, of all people, them Samaritans that were not loved by the Jews. By the way, the, they didn't love the Jews either, so it was a reciprocal dislike. But he affirms the importance of all people. And incidentally, and this is a tough one, especially for some of you, to, this is a tough pill for you to swallow. He, inform, he, inf, he affirms not only the importance of women, but it is a woman that he sends into Sychar to go preach the gospel. It's in the text. He tells her. And he doesn't really even send her. She, she's so excited about it. She leaves her water pot at the well and heads into town, starts telling everybody to Jesus, say, no, what, you can't do that. You're a woman. He didn't say that, did he? He let her go. And they believed her enough that they wanted to come down and see this thing for themselves. And so now Jesus is back in Jerusalem for one of the feasts. It doesn't tell us what feast it is. It tells me it's not necessarily all that important, although it is probably Pentecost, 50 days after Easter. It's probably the Feast of Pentecost because all males had to be in Jerusalem for the three major feasts, which were Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. We'll see Tabernacles in John 7, although you don't always have to read this chronologically because I don't think John wrote it chronologically. But it's very possible that he was here at Pentecost. He's here for the feast. And he goes into this place in the northeast corner of the city of Jerusalem. It's through the Sheep Gate. And it's the Pool of Bethesda. Now, there are other manuscripts that give different names for this particular pool. But I think... I think Bethesda probably makes the most sense for the names of these pools, but even, even that isn't really important. But it was this pool that had really two pools that were interconnected, five porches, and one of the porches was actually a bridge between the two pools. They've unearthed some of this in Jerusalem. And again, in the northeast corner, of the old city. And it's interesting about this word Bethesda because depending on what dictionary you want to read, it can mean house of mercy. Beth is house in, in Hebrew. It can mean flowing water. 
It can also refer to this pools of water or a house of double flowing, which I found that to be interesting as well. And so the first thing I want to bring out here is, is that you have this multitude of people. Now, what's a multitude? Your guess is as good as mine. Probably a lot. How's that? A multitude of people. And they're all sitting or laying around these pools. And they're blind. They're sick. They're lame. They're paralyzed. Now, does, does that look like a fun place to go visit? doesn't really seem to appeal to me either. But Jesus purposely goes there. And the saying is, is that they were laying around by these pools because they believed that at certain times an angel would come down and they would, uh, he would, the angel would stir up the water, and whoever stepped into the water first, after the water was stirred up, they would be made well of whatever disease they had. Now notice when Jesus asked this man, do you want to be made well? This says in verse 7, the sick man says, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Okay. He's trying to get down to the pool. Somebody steps down into the pool before he does. He doesn't say what happens afterwards. I'm going to put some weight on there was some supernatural healing going on here. Because if when the water was stirred up, if the first person in the pool didn't get healed, why would the rest of these people still want to lay around, sit around, grope around, and hope that the water would stir up again and they would just jump in and, and get a healing? Why would they bother? Why would they bother? I don't know how to fully explain this. But I believe that there were some type of miracles that were taking place. There was something there. Uh, and I always wrestle with the supernatural uh, of God and the healing. Uh, because I do believe that God heals. Why would I pray for God to heal someone if I didn't believe that God could do it? I'll give you my doctor's business card. How's that? Now, there's nothing wrong with doctors, all right? I, I met people who they, they don't believe in going to doctors, and I think they should start. Okay, but nonetheless, all right. Nothing wrong with doctors. I think, I think really, I think of, and, and I've been around. I went to a medical healing conference for my dissertation research at a church that most of you probably would not approve of. But anyway, nonetheless, um, it, I was there for research, so it was okay, all right? Um, and talking to doctors and nurses and everybody in that, profe in that profession, and even dentists, uh, and, and how they understood and felt that their vocation was a sense of calling to heal people. 
And I thought, wow, that was. And bo- talk about the nicest people to be around in a conference. Don't, you know, much better than pastors' conferences. Sorry, but just, you know. But anyway, um, they understood that their vocation was a calling and a ministry. And they had a desire to see people healed. I do too as a pastor. That's, I, I pray expecting that God is going to do something, but I also pray knowing that God's going to do what he's going to do. All right? He's going to do what he's going to do. There are, there are still people and things and stuff that I'm still praying about for years and years and years that have not been fulfilled. But I learned a long time ago that God is not a genie in the bottle. You know, if he was, we would abuse it. Let's face it, we would abuse it. And just to, to entrust these things to God, and healing doesn't always make sense. But when it happens, I want to give God the glory. Even if he made the medicine work, even if he used the hand of the physicians to make it work, I still want to give God the glory for his healing. And, you know, some, we're all, you know, if it wasn't for modern medicine, most of us probably would not be sitting here today, including myself. And yet, I believe that God put his hand upon that and, and, and led people into that type of wisdom to understand the human body better. There was some type of healing that was going on that, quite frankly, I can't explain. But as I read this text, I, I, I come away from it saying to myself, you know, something had to be happening for those people to want to still hang out by the pools. Your mileage may vary on that one. How's that? And so Jesus comes up to this guy. The guy has had an infirmity for 38 years. I find that to be fascinating, that he had an infirmity for 38 years. That's a long time. Now, why would John include that? Because he needed more space in his writing? Everything that is recorded, I believe, is recorded for a reason. Does 38 years ring a bell? It should, if you're an Old Testament student. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 14 says that the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. Now, it was a total of 40 years. However, it was 38 years from the time they were at Kadesh Barnea. That was the place where they decided not to go into the promised land, Right? And from the time when they went from Kadesh Barnea to uh, the brook Zered, getting ready to go into the promised land, Deuteronomy 2, verse 14, you can look at it later. Mark said it's 38 years. Wilderness wanderings. 38 years. Now, boy, we think at times we have it rough. If you're the younger generation, you're going in. You're going into the promised land, but not until what? All the old people are dead. 
I mean, that was the truth of it. And yet, at the same time, God is providing the entire time, always providing. Even in, in him saying, you know what, because you did not believe, you will not go in, but I will still provide for you. God's grace is still there. But knowing that you're on a 38-year, and you didn't know how long it was then, of course, but knowing that you're on this, this basically this funeral march, And it, I think it had to be even worse for some of these guys uh, that knew they were not going in. It's almost as if God is saying, I've got to kind of get rid of you before I can really do what I need to do with our people. That's what he's really saying. And to be able to humbly submit to that. And to be able to humbly say, okay, this is, you, you know, is it, whoever named that old television program, named it right. They just didn't know what they were really naming. Father knows best. Because the Lord does know best. And if he knows best, then we want to just submit to that and, and, and give ourselves over to that which he's doing in our lives. And, you know, be honest with you, there are times he does things in my life that I wish he wouldn't do. Or that he wouldn't allow. Or that he would give me an easier time. Wouldn't you like God to give you an easier time? Of course. And it's like, why does it have to be so hard at times? Why does he ordain it that way? I think we grow best during the times of the pain during the times of the darkness, during the times of the uncertainty. Because when, when I'm certain about everything, I don't really need faith in God. Isn't that true? I got it figured out. God, I'll get back with you when I got a problem, right? That's genie in the bottle mentality. It really is. And sometimes for God to really do something in the life of a person, there ha I'm speaking spiritually now, okay, there has to be some deaths to take place. There has to be some dying to self that takes place. There has to be a sense of submission of, okay, God, and I've told God this. I don't really like what's going on in my life right now, but guess what? You're God, I'm not. And I'll be honest with you, I've gotten to the point, you get older, you, you're like, I don't want to trade, I wouldn't want to trade places. Imagine what his day must be like. You know, I mean, really? Oh, don't go there, Mike. But anyway. But just to be submitted to what he's doing, which continues my commitment to his lordship in my life. And Jesus comes along, and, and, and this 38 years is so symbolic of all of that. And Jesus shows up, and what does he do? He asks, do you want to be made well? That's an important question. 
That's a really important question because some people I'm convinced do not want to be made well. Either physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. For whatever reason, and there are many reasons, some people don't want to be made well. Sometimes I think it is that, I think we get comfortable in our dysfunction. Imagine that. Because it becomes normative. And a life of faith is scary, let's face it. It really is. And a life of saying, okay, God, I don't really want to do it this way, but I believe this is the way you want me to go, so I'm going. I'm doing it. There is no plan B. And I think that's part of the problem with us as moderns, is we always have a plan B. Sometimes it's wise, okay? Sometimes it's wise. But often I believe it is, it becomes a fire escape at some point. An escape hatch at some point. Jesus says, do you want to be made well? It, the, the word in the Greek refers to being physically well, to being sound or being healthy. But it can also be used in a figurative sense to, to referring to being uncorrupted or being correct. Do you want to be made uncorrupted? Do you want to be made correct? Do you want your body to work correctly? Do you want your soul to be correct? uncorrupted which is interesting and without really jumping into this too much verse 17 again uh, i'm sorry not verse 17 uh verse 14 where jesus sees the guy in the temple afterwards and says see to you uh, you've been made well sin no more lest the worst thing come upon you you kind of really wonder what type of a conversion this man really had for jesus to say that and yet he healed him anyway he healed him based on his divine purpose. I'm going to get into that next week. But here you have Jesus making this trip to meet this man to satisfy an unfulfilled longing. An un you guys have unfulfilled longings? Or is it just me? Okay, good. <laughs> uh, but you know what I've found? I don't like telling you this. Sometimes the unfulfilled longing has to be put on the, sac on the altar and sacrificed, put to death and sacrificed. And the unfulfilled longing in my life sometimes is something very different than what I thought it was going to be. And, and so even with this, in this walk of faith, there has to be this ongoing, I believe it's important for us to have this ongoing sense of intentionality and, and a sense of clarifying our purpose. What do we really want in life? Do you want to be made well? Do you notice that Jesus in the Gospels asks a lot of questions? Have you noticed that? He asks a lot of questions. Today it's the opposite. 
There's very few questions being asked and a lot of answers being given that I am, be honest with you, can't look anybody in the face. I am so sick of hearing, to be honest with you. I'd rather hear the questions of Jesus and wrestle with them and spend time with them. Do I want to be made well? It's a question that I need to wrestle with. Intentionality. What do I really want? What do you really want out of life? And, and, and yes, I thank God, the creator of heaven and earth, that he gives us more than one thing. Because if I, knowing your lives, even some of your lives, that things are not going really well right now. You guys are really blessed. You know that, don't you? We, we really are blessed people. We are a whole lot more blessed than often it is than we recognize. And God gives us more than one thing. But what is that central thing that you want? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What moves you through your day? Are you, as Paul described, Christians in Mars Hill? I think it's X-19. Are you the type that says in him we live and we move and we have our being? So he asks this question. And he tells him, He simply tells him, you know what's interesting about this? The guy never really said yes. Did you catch that? He just, what did he do? I'm, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be gentle here, all right? He kind of complained, didn't he? What do you mean do I want to be made well? Well, you know, I'm... I'm I'm trying to get someone to put me in the pool, and by the time that I'm just about to get in the pool, somebody else has already jumped in. That in the counseling world is known as secondary emotion. Primary emotion is, yes, I really do want to be healed, but I'm still so angry that I really can't tell you what's really going on with me because it's been 38 very long years. So we couldn't completely answer the question. And so Jesus just, and it's interesting how he deals differently with different people. He just says to the guy, then take your bed, rise up and walk. Or rise up, take your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well. And he took up his bed and he walked. And that day was the Sabbath. Now, I got a whole bunch of stuff to say to you about the Sabbath. But we're going to start on that next week. All right? I'm trying to learn how to shut up a little bit earlier. <laughs> okay? Not your classic healing situation. which I find fascinating. But the question just rings out to me. 
The question I'm going to leave you. Do you want to be made well? Work that one through. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. What does that mean to you? It'll mean different things to different folks today. But do you want to be made well? I think more importantly, I'll take it a step further. Do you want what he wants for you? John and James, I've told this story. I've told this recently. John and James come to Jesus with their mother, their lovely little Jewish mother, and Jesus says, what is it that you want? We want you, Lord, to grant, as when you come into your kingdom, to grant to my sons that they sit on your left and your right hand. And, you know, Jesus, you know what he said to him? Remember the story? He follows up with another question. Are you able to drink of the cup that I'm going to drink of? And they went, oh, yeah, we can. James was the first one that was martyred of the apostles. John was the last one who lived of the apostles. I find that to be fascinating. Two very, very important questions that should really speak into our formation as Christians. What do you want? And are you willing to drink of the cup that he 